Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Political Rewind on Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Fowler, GPB's political reporter and host of the Battleground Ballot Box podcast, filling in for Bill Nygut. Today is a special edition of the show focused on voting in Georgia, its history, challenges, changes, and opportunities. I'm joined today by a stellar panel of experts to help guide this discussion. First up is Mark Nisi, reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution covering voting rights, elections, and Georgia state government. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Great to see you. I am understanding you're working on a story about poll workers. Give us a little preview of what we can expect. Sure. Well, county election officials are trying to hire poll workers for this November's election, and they need some help. So this is an important way to serve voters, regardless of who you are. Um, If you can help with elections, your local county elections office would probably like to hear from you. And we are going to talk about poll workers and the challenges with recruiting them a little bit later in the show. But speaking of poll workers, we have Joseph Kirk. He's the Bartow County Elections Director, one of the most knowledgeable and accessible elections officials in the state, I'll say. He's taking a break from year-round working on elections to join us. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. And we have Dr. Andra Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at my alma mater, Emory University. Good morning. Good morning. I am still sad that I never took your class, but I'm grateful that through opportunities like this and other reporting, I constantly get to learn from you. And I learn from you as well. (laughs) And new to the program is Matt Brown. He's a national correspondent for The Washington Post based here in Georgia. He is a democracy reporter covering voting rights, election security and civic engagement. Glad to have you on the show and tell us a little bit about your new reporting team. Great to be here, Stephen. Yeah, definitely. The democracy team, we're very interested at the Washington Post with threats to democracy, polarization, and questions around who has access to the ballot box in a time when the very election administration that we've all seen as a non-politicized thing has become a politicized question in states like Georgia and beyond. So that's something that we here at the Washington Post, um, me based in Georgia, having grown up here as well, are very, very focused and and interested in to, to look at in this midterm and beyond. Perfect. So before we get into our discussion on voting in Georgia, we do want to briefly discuss some breaking news. The Washington Post has this. It reads, classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the items FBI agents sought in a search of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence on Monday, according to people familiar with the investigation. Experts and classified information said the unusual search underscores deep concern among government officials about the types of information they thought could be located at Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and potentially in danger of falling into the wrong hands. This comes after the FBI executed a search warrant earlier this week, and it apparently has to do with classified documents. Matt, can you briefly catch us up on this story from your colleagues? Definitely. So it's been a very eventful week with the search of with the FBI search that occurred at Mar-a-Lago earlier. It's been an interesting situation where there's been a lot of speculation around what potentially the FBI was after, what they were searching for, and whether it was related to the various investigations into Donald Trump concerning January 6th. What our reporting at the Washington Post shows is that they were primarily interested in nuclear documents and obtaining information that was kept at Mar-a-Lago that was classified and should not necessarily have been there. That reveals, that sheds more light on why this question had to go all the way up to Merrick Garland, um, who, per- who said yesterday that he personally signed off on this search of Mar-a-Lago, and also why count- top counterintelligence officials and other people who were focused on foreign espionage, for instance, were deeply involved in the search. So it's going to be very interesting to see when we actually get the full warrant, which the Washington Post and many other media outlets across the country have filed requests to see. And um, the FBI has now asked for the court in Florida to unseal it to see what actually they were officially looking for. The other question that we don't know here, though, is what they actually found. But we know that they apparently had very substantial probable cause to search Mar-a-Lago. We don't know what they were able to obtain at the end of it. 
And so, Andra, obviously a lot of this is very unprecedented territory. We've spent much of this week with Republicans saying that the FBI is uh, overstepping its bounds. They've talked about rogue agents, other things like that. So can you put in the context uh, just how unprecedented this is and where, uh, in some cases, it seems like the facts of the situation don't even matter as far as politics of the situation go? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a sad commentary on our politics today that the facts don't necessarily matter in this case. And so we see a lot of bluster that was getting ahead of the facts. And I think, you know, it's our job to just make sure that we uh, turn the heat down a little bit and sort of understand what's going on here. So the first thing that's unprecedented is the allegation that President Trump took um, boxes and boxes of information that under the Presidential Records Act should have stayed in Washington, D.C. and gone to the National Archives. Um, so that's the first problem, right? And we knew this, um, you know, even in 2021, as uh, we were going through the presidential transition from Trump to Biden, that he took documents away. And we also have known over the course of his presidency that he hasn't necessarily followed the Presidential Records Act, that there was a tendency of, of him to tear up documents and that his staffers were going through waste paper baskets in order to get these documents back to tape them up and send them back. So he's always been sloppy with his records, and we've known for a long time that that is the case. Um, now that we're hearing that the documents that they may have been going after were not necessarily unclassified or benign documents or things that could be considered mementos, but actually may have contained um, things that are actually highly sensitive and related to national security is, is even more alarming. And I think this also puts us into unprecedented territory that, if proven true, is going to completely justify um, the actions that the FBI took in, in, in issuing the warrant. The, the other thing about this that's interesting is that, you know, Trump has, in true form, you know, taken on the role of playing the victim and saying, you know, that, that he's being persecuted, that he's being unfairly targeted, right? And we can get into the merits of when you do stuff that nobody else has done before that's illegal, of course, that's going to sort of, you know, engender a certain level of scrutiny. But he's also claimed that the raid on his house was comparable to the break-in at Watergate. Um, and that's just ludicrous, right? So this was a legal warrant that was signed by a judge, uh, you know, where he has been given due process in order to, you know, make sure uh, that he knows what was taken and that he knows why it was being taken uh, to the extent that they can tell him that. Um, and this wasn't some illegal break-in by a sitting president on his opponent's uh, you know, campaign headquarters to figure out what was going on. So the whole idea is ludicrous. And, I, and just for one more thing, you know, the thing that really bothers me about this is that I understand why in an era of hyperpartisanship, Republicans would be quick to rally around their president. But on the other hand, to actually, um, you know, sort of impugn the reputations of the hardworking people of the FBI, most of whom are civil servants and not political appointees, um, and to jump to conclusions about things because it's politically expedient for you to do so, you not only undermine our institutions, but you're also kind of defying common sense um, in many different instances by not just sitting around and waiting for the information to come out. And so we're taking advantage of the fact that this takes time in order to make a political point that you might end up having to backtrack on later. So this has all just been really troubling to watch all week. All right. Well, the clock is winding down on the former president as a federal judge in Florida has given the Justice Department until 3 p.m. today to talk to Trump's attorneys and advise the court whether Trump objects to the release of the warrant authorizing the search. We will have more on this story in coming episodes of Political Rewind. So, Dr. Gillespie, I would also like to start our main discussion on voting with you. Help us understand a little bit of the history of voting in Georgia, say, starting with Reconstruction and the American South. Obviously, technology has evolved since that time. <laughs> there were no electronic voting machines in the 1800s. But also the law around who gets to vote and how has changed over that time. So could you set the stage for us with kind of the evolution of uh, who has and has not been able to vote in Georgia? So um, briefly, um, uh, blacks who are formerly enslaved persons in the United States didn't have full citizenship rights um, in the United States until after the Civil War and the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 15th Amendment, which was ratified in 1870, is what gives blacks the right to vote. Georgia has to revise its state constitution in order to make accommodations for that 
across the South, we do see this market increase in the, you know, in black men voting and it reaps consequences um, in terms of uh, black uh, members of Congress, uh, black members of state legislatures. Um, and but this starts to, to, to wane in the latter part of the 19th century. So after Reconstruction formally ends um, surrounding the results of the 1876 election, um, we start to see uh, southern states, including Georgia, um, change their state constitutions to allow um, for um, uh, states to circumvent the 15th Amendment. And you also start to see laws being passed. Um, in the state that uh, will also make it difficult. So if we start to think about things like, um, broadly speaking, literacy tests, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, all of these things were done um, that were targeted towards African-Americans, but the laws didn't specifically mention African-Americans, right? So if you say you have to pass a literacy test, right, you're taking advantage of the fact that Blacks hadn't had much access to education, and there are going to be some Blacks who hadn't had access to schooling. But then there's also the selective enforcement of, of these rules and laws. So even when Blacks could read, um, you could uh, uh, have to go before an elections board in your local community where it doesn't matter what you can do. Um, you could end up in a place where the elections board determines that you're not literate enough to be able to read and interpret the Constitution. Um, there's a very famous story of an uh, advisor of a friend of mine who passed away in 2020 um, who had to uh, register in Louisiana after getting a Ph.D., um, with a focus on on um, where he ends up becoming a sort of noted scholar of, of of judicial politics, where he was asked to interpret the 14th Amendment. And he was like, look, the Supreme Court isn't even set on that. And so he managed to be able to pass his literacy test in the 1950s. Um, but most people are not in a position to be able to do that. And many people weren't in a position to be able to pay the poll tax. The poll tax has been uh, deemed unconstitutional by a revision uh, to the U.S. Constitution. Other provisions uh, were uh, made uh, illegal by the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so in the Voting Rights Act, uh, what the primary sort of purpose of it was, especially in its first and second iterations, was to look at states that had a history of Black disenfranchisement, and that was later expanded to include the disenfranchisement, um, disenfranchisement of other groups, um, particularly language minorities. Um, that in places where there's a history where you see these groups voting at substantially lower rates than your white population, um, that there needs to be some level of judicial oversight. So until 2013 and the decision of Shelby County versus Holder, uh, localities that had had a history of voter discrimination um, were um, required to submit any changes to their electoral system, uh, whether it's changes to their districting lines, uh, moving polling locations from one uh, spot to another spot. Uh, these all had to be uh, past changes, voter ID laws. All of these would have to go through uh, the Justice Department. They would have to get preclearance from Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department before any changes would be allowed to be implemented because there was a history of bad faith in, in, in these communities. Now, this changes in 2013 where the Supreme Court um, in their Shelby County versus Holder decision says that the part of the Voting Rights Act that was uh, designed to determine who qualified for preclearance was outdated because Congress hadn't updated it. Um, and so they said until this actually gets rectified, then you can't have preclearance. And so since 2013, Congress has not updated uh, who qualifies for preclearance and who doesn't. That, those were part of, you know, the impetus behind uh, trying to get things like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, through Congress. Uh, also, the For the People Act, but because uh, there has, uh, you know, been a, 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 a block in the Senate because there aren't 60 votes uh, to be able to actually, like, get this out of cloture, uh, we are at a standstill. Right. Thank you for that history lesson. There's a lot of stuff in Georgia's history that has been less than savory in regards to voting and voting rights and voting rules. And uh, I actually, uh, to plug my podcast, I did one in 2020 about the history of Georgia's voting laws. Uh, there's a lot of good voting reforms that Georgia's passed over the years and a lot of less than good voting reforms they've passed over years. Uh, but, Mark, I want to talk about uh, more recent changes in Georgia. 
Uh, there was once upon a time not that long ago where depending on where you lived in Georgia, uh, you had different methods of voting, uh, lever machines, different things like that. And uh, there was a change in the early 2000s to Georgia's voting equipment and voting machines. So walk us through how the beginning of the standardization of voting in Georgia's 159 counties came to be in the last 20 years or so. And you're on mute, Mark. The joys of live radio. <laughs> uh, still having issues hearing Mark. Um, so we will pivot the conversation slightly to talk about SB202. It's the 98-page voting law that made sweeping changes to elections in Georgia, everything from absentee voting to uh, how elections officials count the votes to different things like that. And uh, we will bring in Joseph Kirk now to talk about that. Joseph is the elections director in Bartow County. And um, there are a lot of things about your job that have been changed by SB202. So uh, do you have a list of us of some of the things that you like that's been changed about your job? Oh, absolutely. Um, just to make sure you can't hear me, right? Yes. Okay. So, you know, there, as you said, it's a 98-page law. There was so much in there. There's so much to unpack. Um, but there are quite a few, I think, there were good changes that, that may not be discussed as much in the news as some of the others. Um, for example, the ability to hire poll workers from other counties. Up until that law, we had to hire poll workers from, that, had, that lived in our county, and that walked us in. So if another county next door had extra folks who were trained, they didn't need for an election, they couldn't go to the neighboring county to help out. Um, it requires the state to act on information from a group called ERIC which is a multi-state partnership. There's 33 states in there right now, along with the District of Columbia, um, that share voter registration information. And it helps us keep our list as clean as possible. So we know when folks move between these states, not only can we remove them from our list after a certain process, but we can offer folks that move to Georgia a chance to register because we know they've moved from a different state and, and go ahead and get them on our list before the next election. Um, and that is a, a great group for us to be a, a member of. Um, it gives us as election administrators a lot of discretion on how much equipment we deploy for most elections. We still have to deploy um, one machine for every 250 voters for uh, statewide general elections, but other elections where we see a much smaller turnout, we can deploy less equipment and actually save some taxpayer money, make um, our employees' lives a little bit easier, it helps with recruitment if they don't do so much work in small elections. So that's a great change. Um, and then poll watchers are required to be trained now. Poll watchers are incredibly important to the process. Having folks there to observe our employees and, and say what went right, what went wrong, is, is a key step. But if they're not trained, they don't know what to watch for, they don't know what their role is. So requiring that training is a huge step forward for us. Uh, ballot images are public record now. If you're not aware, every time a ballot scans through the Dominion voting system, it immediately scans an image of that ballot that is automatically stored as part of the record of the election, and we can now provide those as public records. Anyone who has questions, they can go through the images themselves, look at them, um, count the vote votes for themselves if they'd like to, and I've uh, answered quite a few open, open records requests for those images, and people seem to be happy with that. Um, and then the, the other thing that, that really helps us and will help us in this November is it allows us to process absentee ballots early. We can start counting those before election night. We can't report the results. Even I can't see what the results are, but we can start scanning them so we have results in a timely manner on election night and we're not here quite so late or in the, um, the days following the election. So, Joseph, most of the changes that are in this law are things that voters aren't going to notice or witness. You know, voters aren't going to be able to see, for example, that your absentee ballots are being processed early. They're not going to see the exact number of machines you would have had then versus had now. But one of the biggest changes is to how the absentee voting process works, uh, the ID requirement as part of it, but also... Uh, there is a more narrow window of when you can request an absentee ballot and get it mailed to you and turned back. From an election official perspective, uh, do you think the window making it where you can request it uh, only 
11 weeks before up until 11 days before. Uh, how does that affect you and your staff from their end having a much more narrow window and an earlier deadline to get those absentee ballots pro- uh, applications processed? Well, I'll say this is not my most, this is my favorite part of this law. Um, my staff spent a lot of time the past few weeks explaining to, to elderly citizens, we're so sorry, it's too early for you to apply for a ballot. You need to, to call us back, you need to send your application after August 22nd for it to be um, put into our system. And, and that's really confused some of our elderly voters. And then I have some concerns going into this November. If you can't request a ballot after 11 days prior to the election, that's the, that's the, um, the second Friday prior to the election, folks that called out of town on work, emergencies happen, they may not be able to, co- able to come vote in person. And in the past, we were able to help those folks by sending them a ballot in the mail. Um, sometimes they were able to receive that and we could count it. Sometimes they couldn't, but they at least had the chance. So we haven't. this is the first time we've had a big election with this new law in place. I'm very concerned that some folks will be disenfranchised as a result, um, but only time will tell. Got it. And then the last big topic from the election official perspective, um, there have been uh, two items in the bill that have gotten a lot of traction and attention. One is a ban on funding, outside funding. Um, in the 2020 election cycle, there was a lot of money that rural and urban counties, Democratic and Republican-leaning counties, received from philanthropic places like the Center for Tech and Civic Life and the Schwarzenegger Institute. Under the new law, your office can no longer directly receive funding. And so I'm curious how that might impact things for you. But then also, there's been a lot of concern from Democrats and voting rights groups about a provision in the law that puts uh, county elections boards, not you as a supervisor, but your elections board, under potential oversight from the state elections board on a performance review plan, which is what Fulton County is going under. And so I guess if you could talk about those two things, the, the funding ban and then the increased oversight from the state election board on local elections offices and how you think those impact the, the job that you do and other election officials do. Absolutely. And I got one more to throw in there, if you don't mind, about the the, um, the runoff time frame. But as far as funding goes, Bartow County did receive a grant from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. We used that for um, PPE and a few other expenses we hand around, had around the pandemic. There were absolutely no strings attached. It was very helpful, and, and we appreciated it. Um, but that, that's stuff that we normally do. We don't. We normally get all our funding from our, our governing authority, and I have a governing authority that that really is generous in the funding for my department. I'm very appreciative of that. Um, what worries me about that provision of the law is not funding of that nature, it's local partnerships. They didn't just say you can't take money from a philanthropic group out of state. They said you can't take any donations at all. So say the church down the street or the local chamber of commerce used to donate the facility to me. I can't take that donation anymore. And these are local partnerships that show support from my office that at a time that we need that support, we need the, you know, where people do not trust the process, Having those community groups show their support is so important, and now they are um, prevented from doing so. Um, as far as the um, the well, just going to jump to this, the runoff time frame goes. That makes it a lot harder for us to do things after the election that is that are so important. Um, post-election audits, canvassing procedures that we have to go through for public confidence. Now we have even less time, and it makes it even harder on us to do, get that done in a timely manner. And I apologize. What was the other thing you want me to talk about? Uh, the the uh, election takeover provision that people uh, say of the, the state election board being able to appoint a performance review panel to look at how local elections boards operate. So as far as that one goes, I had one opinion at the time, and it's changed over time. There are laws in place that would allow the state election board to to look at county election boards um, that exist for Senate Bill 202. But one of the things that, that concerns about elections in Georgia right now, we have 159 counties of all sizes, um, and we need pro- professional election administrators in those roles. And right now, there are a number of counties who are not – I don't want to say performing as well as I need to, but the governing authority doesn't have the incentive to fund that department properly. 
they are not putting a salary to these positions they need to to get the folks in those jobs they need as folks are leaving our profession people don't want to apply for these election jobs and until counties are held to account for the mistakes they make for things that go wrong i don't see where the governing authority will have the incentive to actually start funding these departments properly and putting the money towards them that they need so that that might be a, a provision that's necessary all right, Andra, we will let you get in the last word before we take a break shortly. So uh, what are your thoughts on what Joseph's saying about his job? Well, I just had a couple of clarifying questions, so I just wanted to be sure that I understood. So um, if you use a, you know, a church or some type of nonprofit center as a polling location, um, that was an in-kind donation before. Is that affected at all by, um, by these provisions? And then second, when you were talking about uh, certain counties being underfunded, um, are you seeing the sort of threat of a performance review as being a carrot or a stick to encourage counties to actually put more money towards uh, their election provisions or not? I just wanted to be sure that I understood. Uh, absolutely. Well, as far as the first one goes, my understanding of Senate Bill 202 is it prevents all donations, and whether they intended it to include in-kind donations from local nonprofits or not, it does. Um, now, whether or not they'd ever you know, come after us for that donation is a, another question, but under a strict interpret- interpretation of the law, I, I've asked those facilities to, to charge me now because I don't want to get in trouble for um, violating the law. And then as far as a carrot or a stick, I'm not sure um, whichever one works. But these, um, you know, every county needs to fund their election department properly to have the staff in there they need to do what's turning into a very complex job. You know, talking about the last 20 years, you're getting a statewide system and all that, elections has changed dramatically in the last 10 or 20 years. What we expected of an office that's kind of sleepy most of the year and just only gets busy once every two to four years is no longer the case. This is a 40-hour-a-week job in the off-season, 60 to 80 hours a week um, when we get busy, and it's so much more complex than it used to be, and some of the county salaries have not changed to match that reality. Perfect. Thank you for this discussion so far. We're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our discussion about voting in Georgia and Senate Bill 202. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm GPB's Stephen Fowler, filling in for Bill Nygut. I'm joined by Mark Nisi with the AJC, Matt Brown with the Washington Post, Joseph Kirk, the Bartow County Elections Director, and Dr. Andra Gillespie from Emory University. Matt, you have hit the ground running reporting on voting in Georgia since starting with the democracy team. And back in the primary, you did some reporting about how smooth the primary process was, and there were concerns for November that it might not be as smooth with more people voting. So talk a little bit about your reporting and what you found talking to voters and voting rights groups and elections officials about the current state of voting in Georgia. Absolutely. So the interesting thing that we saw in the Georgia primary was that obviously over the past year since SB202 got passed, folks were um, speculating, um, fearing, um, promoting what the law's actual effect was going to be on Georgia's elections. And, and, and the primary was actually the first time that we were able to see at least some of those provisions go into real effect on a, on a scale when millions of Georgians were actually casting their ballot. The thing that we observed at the Post was that Turnout was definitely up. People are engaged in Georgia. They know that their, that their vote matters here. They know the history of voting in this state. And people were very, very motivated to turn out to the ballot, which is why we saw turnout through the roof even from 2018, which was itself a very high turnout year um, historically. It was also notable in our post analysis is what we found is that actually um, this, um, in SB202 made it so that from our analysis, the rejections of ballots that actually were processed and accepted went down. So we saw that um, because of that, that if you actually were able to cast your ballot um, in, a, in, a, in an absentee way, then that meant that you were 
more likely to have it actually accepted in 2022 than in 2018, for instance. That said, applications for absentee ballots went, um, were, went crashing down and the actual use of absentee ballots also decreased. This is from a lot of the provisions, for instance, of making it harder to find drop boxes, making it much harder to, or having much more stringent regulations around what you actually need to have to apply for an absentee ballot. Um, but that actually, once you were able to obtain one, we saw that that actually declined. It was also important to note that in this situation, there weren't that many lines that were long lines that were voted around the state. Um, we didn't see a lot of reports of difficulties with the actual um, election administration or or um, voting systems like we saw in 2020 and 2018. It's important to note though that voting rights advocates were also very, very clear with me that it's apples to oranges to compare a primary where only one of the parties is having a very competitive election to um, what's going to happen in the fall, which is when you're going to see, obviously, like incredible turnout on both sides in both urban and rural areas. And you're going to see a lot of um, forces, for instance, recently empowered partisan poll watchers, who we don't know actually how that's going to play out once these people are able to um, get, into, get into more of the election rooms. And I'm very curious to see how election administration is going to be able to um, hold up when it's going to be in this very, very polarized, very, very engaged environment. Right. And so, Mark, uh, you and I have done a lot of reporting on Georgia voting laws and the impacts of the laws and things. And I want to talk about drop boxes in a second. But, Mark, um, looking at SB 202, you've seen uh, Democrats say that it's Jim Crow 2.0 and that it's terrible. And Republicans have said it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. And they point to the record turnout. And Matt alluded to it a little bit. But um, can you explain a little bit how looking at absentee numbers and rejection numbers and voting numbers in uh, the 2021 municipal elections and the 2022 primaries might not give us the fullest picture of how Senate Bill 202 will actually impact the Georgia electorate. Sure. So turnout is of primarily a function of voter interest and candidates. So, yes, we did see great turnout in the primary election in Georgia, um, but that doesn't mean that Georgia's voting law, Senate Bill 202, didn't have an effect. And some of its primary effects were on absentee voting and some of the rules and regulations that uh, Mr. Kirk discussed regarding the deadlines to request and return absentee ballots. And so we did see rejection rates tick up a little bit, uh, 2% in this year's primary compared to 1% in the 2020 primary and in the general election. And we did see different causes for rejections, you know, because we now have photo, photo ID primarily used for absentee ballot identification of voters rather than signature match, um, you saw the number of rejections because of mismatched signatures go down and the number of rejections because of voter ID mismatches increase. So those are some of the impacts. You know, um, absentee voting overall decreased in 2022's primary and runoffs, in part because we're not in COVID anymore and, not, and people are returning to their normal voter behavior, but also probably in part because Georgia's voting law did impose new rules and regulations for how to apply and return an absentee ballot. And so, Andra, you know, I want to be clear, Georgia does have some of the best voter access laws on the books compared to other states. Three weeks of in-person early voting, the new mm -hmm. voting law added to some of the days and the requirements for that. It has no excuse absentee voting, which means if you want to vote absentee, as long as you meet the requirements and fill out everything correctly, you can vote absentee. There are many in-person early voting sites. Um, in urban areas and rural areas. So on paper, Georgia has some of the best voting access laws in the country. And looking at turnout numbers, especially when you look at the 2020 presidential election, it was an unprecedented 5 million people that had their votes cast and counted. And so, you know, how do you square, you know, or I guess, you know, you can look at that and say it's easier to vote in Georgia than it's ever been before. But that's not the case for every single person in every single place. And so how can you square this conversation around what the laws are on the books with the reality of some people on the ground who say, no, it's still not the easiest to vote in Georgia or this law actually curbed some of the access with different restrictions on absentee voting and other things like that. Like, how can you, I guess, you know, is there a right way of viewing the impact of Georgia's election law? Like, can you say definitively 
it makes it easier to vote than ever before or it restricts the vote? Or is it kind of a complex, nuanced situation? Well, it's, it's always complexity and nuance. Um, so, you know, I think the bigger questions here are what is intent? What's the purpose? Like what motivated uh, uh, the passage um, of the law? Um, and then there will be questions about whether or not it looks like uh, certain types of uh, proscribed uh, activities were targeted for particular reasons because of perceptions that certain people were using um, these uh, uh, innovations more than others. And then we also can't ignore the recent history. So at the start of this conversation, we talked about the things that happened a long time ago, but like there's stuff that's happened well within the last 50 years um, that has uh, given voting rights active, uh, activists pause in the state. So, you know, leading up to 2020 and then the passage of SB 202 in 2021, look, we can't ignore that there were uh, you know, lawsuits related to exact match, where if somebody's name was not written exactly the same on their voter registration application as it was on their social security application or on their driver's license, then that uh, could actually uh, hold up your uh, voter registration from being approved. And this, uh, you know, could be the result of clerical error, but this was disproportionately affecting people of color. Um, who may have unusual names or unusual spellings of names that might make it more likely for there to be some type of transcription error. So, I mean, if you think about it, if you have a dash or an apostrophe in your name, um, this could be something where if it shows up on uh, your voter registration application, but it's not on your driver's license, even though it's very clear that you're the same person, um, this this could co this could pose a problem for somebody, and that that's more likely to um, affect people who don't necessarily have traditional Western stylings of names. It could be something simple. You may have a conventional name but for Americans, but it gets spelled differently, and the clerk is typing it in wrong because they saw that. Mary is Mary, and you know, and you spell it with an I, or you spell it with two E's, and that could pose a problem. Um, I actually had this happen to one of my students, and I will mention that this was a white guy. Um, somebody mistranscribed his middle initial. He wasn't allowed to vote, right, because he couldn't. He produced an ID that said something else, like you know, his middle initial was M, and it was written N or J or something on his application. These things come up, uh, people who hyphenate their last names. So this may disproportionately affect women, right? If their application has a hyphen on one form, but their driver's license doesn't, this came up. And so this has been litigated before. Um, if we look at disproportionate rates of absentee ballot rejections, this was another issue that came up in 2018. All of these things are things that have come up before. So it's not like voting rights advocates are kind of like making stuff up and being paranoid. They have a history on which to base this. And I think a lot of the questions are based on uh, 2020 voting behavior, which was exceptional because of COVID, right? The big question is, did uh, the lawmakers uh, specifically target uh, types of voting practices that were more likely to be practiced by Democrats or more likely to be practiced by Black Democrats in particular? And that's where the rub lies. So a lot of this is about um, intention and whether or not, uh, uh, whether or not there's anything that's legally discriminatory there. Got it. And that is a great segue to talk about drop boxes. It's one of the many, many provisions in this 98-page voting law. And Joseph, I want to start with you. Uh, the drop box law, drop boxes were something that the state election board put into place as an emergency rule during the pandemic as a method to have people be able to return an absentee ballot without being around people, without potentially exposing themselves to COVID. Um, it was a relatively popular tool. And then Senate Bill 202 actually codified drop boxes into law, but putting a restriction on how many a county can have. So one per early voting site or one per 100,000 voters, whichever is fewer. And so in many counties in Georgia, smaller rural counties, they added a drop box or kept the one drop box that they already had. And in many urban counties where there are a lot of voters, a lot of Democrats, a lot of people of color, the number of drop boxes actually went down. And uh, Mark and I did a story on that last year together, and I just did an NPR investigation into drop boxes this year that we'll get to in a second. But Joseph, just uh, for the real world impact, uh, I interviewed you for this story. Talk a little bit about what your drop box situation was in 2020 and what it is in 2022. 
Well, one, one thing to clarify, it's not one drop box per early voting location. It's one per county. And then if you have a, it has to be in an early voting location or the registrar's office. And then for every 100,000 voters, you have over 100,000, you can have an additional drop box. So for most of us, that means exactly one drop box. Um, and my issue with the law has always been uniformity, uh, a question of uniformity, not statewide, but within the county. In a big election, I have four early voting sites. And which one deserves that service? Um, I'd much rather them if they bring come to my office, hand their, their envelope to a registrar who is trained to look at it while the person's here, make sure they filled it out properly because it is more complicated than it used to be, then drop it in a box in my office only for us to reach out to them later if something went wrong. So, but, but that gets me to a point I keep talking about, which is local control over elections. Um, that's extraordinarily important. And um, getting back to a previous point about exact match, about um, am, you know uh, signatures and absentee ballots, those are all things that were controlled by the local local registrars. And having people in that role that take it seriously, that do a good job, that, tr that, that, that go the extra mile for the voter, makes all the difference in the world. Um, so my ask to the legislature about drop boxes has always been, if we're going to have them, let me put them out into the field in a way that's uniform, that makes sense for my community, which would be one at each one of my early voting sites, rather than having to figure out where one goes um, and, and which part of the county deserves that service. Got it. So we are going to take our final break on Political Rewind and come back and continue this discussion on drop boxes. This is Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Stephen Fowler filling in for Bill Nygut, and I'm talking with Andre Gillespie, Matt Brown, Mark Nisi, and Joseph Kirk. We were talking before the break about drop boxes, and Mark, you and I have both done extensive reporting on drop boxes, and we found by looking at the drop box transfer forms, which is what election workers filled out to count how many ballots they took from how many boxes each day of the 2020 election, we found that most of the ballots that were returned using drop boxes were in the big urban metropolitan Atlanta areas like Fulton, De Fulton DeKalb, Cobb, Gwinnett counties. And in many of the rural counties that had drop boxes, not very many voters used it. You might say, duh, there's a lot of people in these big areas and there's not a lot of people in the small areas. But when we look at the drop box law, we found that there are actually sharper reductions in the places that use them most, and there's additions in places that don't really use them or need them at all. And so drop boxes, like every aspect of voting in Georgia, it seems, are a controversial subject. Um, and so talk a little bit about what the reporting found about uh, who used them and where and what the impact might be now that there are fewer drop boxes available in Metro Atlanta. Sure. So the people who use drop boxes are the people more likely to be in metropolitan areas, which were also the areas that offered the most drop boxes. It makes sense. Those are also the areas where absentee ballot usage was highest. But as controversial as drop boxes might have been among its, their skeptics in 2020, or as supported as they were by their users and voters who really liked them in 2020, now drop boxes are are um, much more limited where they do have to be inside a voting location and during voting hours and closed at nights and closed on weekends and closed in the last four days, including election day before the election. So whatever concerns there were about drop boxes in the past, now under Georgia law, um, they are under supervision of election officials and much more limited. So it seems like, on one hand, um, drop boxes are probably a lot more secure, but on the other hand, they're a lot less useful. Um, and we'll see that fewer people have used drop boxes since Georgia's voting law and will continue to use them because why use a drop box unless you already requested an absentee ballot and forgot to return it if you're already going to a voting location to return it? And we hear that from county election directors where they say drop boxes are in some cases almost totally useless. 
And Matt, I want to take this out kind of to the national level. You know, you're a national correspondent. You cover Georgia, but you have colleagues in other states that are covering things. A lot of times it seems like Georgia is on its own in this island, in this spotlight of election rules and election laws, and everybody's talking about Georgia. But drop boxes and election issues are not just a Georgia-specific thing. I mean, you have colleagues in Wisconsin and other states, right, that are also dealing with uh, states that don't know what to do about drop boxes or uh, office holders that are promoting conspiracy theories about drop boxes. Like, our, our drop boxes aren't just a Georgia-specific issue, right? No, absolutely not. And in fact, very recently, the Wisconsin Supreme Court actually just prohibited the use of most drop boxes. So this is a this is a national debate that we're seeing over over the use of drop boxes, over the use of absentee ballots in the wake of the pandemic, which is a very interesting thing when you when you take it to the national level, because you've seen restrictions, for instance, on drop boxes and absentee ballot voting in states like Utah and Wyoming, where or in Florida, where they were previously very used for where they were very favored by Republicans, um, by groups who, you know, these were good for the elderly, these were good for people who might not have had time to, you know, vote in, um, during the day. And, and now those those same politicians are, are saying that we don't want um, this method of voting to be used anymore. Um, at the same time that in, in states like, you know, California and New York that might not have had necessarily as much of a focus on, on ballot drop boxes are saying, well, we need to expand this. I think it's also important when we look at the, the national level around this and, and Georgia's unique role almost in it. Um, we're a very unique state in a lot of ways. We're also a very emblematic state in a lot of ways. I think it's important to highlight this, the, the skepticism around drop boxes and what it's really rooted in. There, there seems to be a lot of um, misinformation rooted in the suspicion that drop boxes are somehow an insecure way of voting, which we don't have any evidence for. Multiple investigations here in Georgia and elsewhere found that they are not just because the drop boxes, you know, maybe just sitting out overnight or someone can, you know, put their ballot in there at any at any time of day, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an insecure form of voting, especially if the ballot is is, you know, still scanned and processed in, in the normal way at the end of the day. Um, so the laws that are, for instance, making it so that you can't do so-called ballot harvesting in, in Georgia and elsewhere, laws that make it so that as we as we discussed, ballot drop boxes are, are under lock and seal only um, after hours. Those are those are born of um, suspicions about ballot drop boxes and absentee ballot voting that aren't necessarily borne out in the investigations and the research that we've done here at the Washington Post and many people have done elsewhere around whether or not drop boxes are actually a secure method of voting or not. And it's interesting to see in, in this day and age where people might not necessarily explain or, or espouse the most hardline conspiracy theory on this, but it's in the bloodstream of, of, of our culture and our discourse around this, where there's just a suspicion or a skepticism that, that this method of voting is, is not effective. And, and that's something to really engage with and, and to better understand and just actually what is the data tell us. And so, Andra, you know, there has been, unfortunately, a rich history of the politicization of the ballot box throughout our country's history, throughout Georgia's history. Uh, you know, there are still people living to, you know, there are people alive today that were not able to vote when they were younger. Um, we are relatively new at having this sort of expanded franchise and expanded things. But it seems a little different this time with some of the language and some of the rhetoric around voting and voting access and voting rules. And so I'm wondering from the political science perspective, what are some things that you're keeping an eye on in the midterm elections and in the upcoming presidential election around the subject of voting access that uh, cuts through a little bit of the politics, but might larger might have a larger effect on our American democracy. Well, I think there are two questions with respect to to, to voting. Um, scholars of political participation are actually going to pay attention to who shows up. Um, and whether or not we see any differences that we're going to actually be able to causally link to changes in voting laws. Um, so, you know, these questions have come up before, you know, when uh, voter ID laws were being passed. And so um, similarly, we're going to see similar types of studies coming down the pipeline in the next couple of years that are going to be looking at the 2021 changes that happen across the country and what their impacts are going to be on voter turnout overall, but also on voter turnout of, of, of vulnerable and marginalized groups. The other, you know, part of this is the story of disinformation, right? And so, you know, there's this larger issue about whether or not people um, believe the big lie and whether or not that's actually influencing their voting behavior. Um, you know, ultimately, 
part of this story is a story of Donald Trump not taking responsibility for the fact that his very flippant comments um, actually probably reduced voter turnout in the state. Um, and then there's a larger question of him questioning the results of the election and signaling that he was going to start crying fraud months before there was an election and without evidence. And the fact that people still believe that despite the fact um, that you and Matt and, and Mark and others routinely, um, you know, study and report how this is not true. So, you know, this is this is going to be the effect. And so I think that there is, is this larger study about how and why people believe the disinformation, despite the fact that many people try to sort of present the uh, true evidence to the contrary. And then I think people will be paying attention to what the impact is going to be if one of these election deniers actually ends up being elected and what their behavior is going to be with respect to elections um, once that happens. So there, there are um, are sadly to say lots of, of, of really important research questions that will come out of this. Got it. And then, Joseph, I want to give the last word to you because, you know, this is the space that you work in every day. I know after the 2020 election, you have done a lot of work both within your own county and the state and even spoken nationally about trust in elections and opening up the process and the transparency. So I want to give the last word here to you and your thoughts about this uh, distrust of elections. Well, I appreciate that. And um, the distrust, the disinformation we're seeing, the misinformation we're seeing is a tremendous problem. And it, I think it stems from a lack of knowledge about our elections process in general. We don't teach you know, anything about the actual nuts and bolts of how elections are run in schools. No one knows they need to change their address when they move. If you go to the tag office, I don't get that information. That I get from the post office maybe once or twice a year. Um, using Dropbox as the example, from an election administrator standpoint, if I get a ballot from a Dropbox or I get it in the mail, it's exactly the same thing. We process it the same way, not just scan it the same way, but check it in and verify the security of it and the integrity of that ballot. So we're, we're spending all this time talking about things when the folks who may be having this conversation don't understand necessarily what they're talking about. Um, and it, it really hurts. And then when there's a, a gap in knowledge, it can be filled by whatever people want to believe, where if they knew about how it actually worked ahead of time, we'd be inoculated from this missing disinformation. But um, it's hard to keep folks engaged. I'm very hopeful right now. I try to stay positive that we have engagement in the process right now. We can use that to educate folks and make sure we don't have these issues in the future. Joseph Kirk, Bartow County Elections Director, you get the last word on today's panel. Thank you to my entire panel for a great show. You can check your voter registration information at any time online at the state's My Voter page. That's mvp.sos.ga.gov. Also want to give a plug, GPB is part of a new community-powered journalism project to answer questions about voting. It's called America Amplified. You can find that information on our website at gpb.org. We're asking you to participate by submitting your question in the blue box on our elections page. You can also find the latest news on Georgia's midterm election, find our explainers on how to vote absentee by mail, what Georgia's new election law does, and plenty of other midterm-related coverage. Our panel today, Dr. Andra Gillespie, Joseph Kirk, Mark Nisi, Matt Brown, thank you so, so much for sharing your time with me. I'm Stephen Fowler, GPB's political reporter, filling in for Bill Nygut. That's all the time we have today. For now, a special thanks to the talented team that produces this show and makes me look good, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, and engineers Victoria Evans-Cash and Jake Cook. Bill Nygut is back on Monday. But for now, enjoy your weekend and wear a mask. <laughs>